I was all set with uh, part two of last week's message and was looking for a quote. I couldn't find it. But in looking for the quote, I came across this passage and was just gripped by it again. Uh, Go back to 1978, and I received four tapes, cassette tapes, in the mail from a young guy named R.C. Sproul. Never heard of him before. And he had a message entitled, Sacrifice and Satisfaction. And it was on this passage. And I listened to it over and again and took handwritten notes. And so the original version of this message is from my handwritten notes. So we for sure won't blame R.C. Sproul. (laughs) But thankfully, that was many years ago, and I could halfway write back then. But uh, I don't know of anything more needful for us than to glory in the cross. And this really spoke to my heart. I hope it will be a blessing to all of us as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, grace greater than all our sin. And Father, we thank you that we have this privilege to open your word and to be drawn by the word of God and the spirit of God to glory in the cross of Jesus. And so for this we pray, accomplish your good purpose, and we bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Reading the uh, same, some of the same verses that was just read, drawing from some other translations at a couple of points. Look at verse 11 or verse 12, and the King James talks about that uh, people are wanting to make a fair show of the flesh, and they're wanting to escape persecution by the cross. And so the Taylor paraphrase puts it this way. Those teachers of yours who are trying to force you to be circumcised are doing it just for one reason, so that they can be popular and avoid the persecution that, would, that they would get if they admitted that the cross of Christ alone can save you. Now, that may be more than what the text actually says, but that is right on with all of the teaching of Scripture. It is a paraphrase, but it is a wonderful statement of gospel truth. Uh, And going on in verse 13, from the Knox translation, Why do they not even observe the law, although they they adopt circumcision? And they are having you circumcised so as to make a display of your outward Conformity. There is a great push upon the hearts and lives of many of God's people to conform to what the majority are doing. And that is never more deadly than when it comes to the Christian life, the need to conform. 
What if you and I had been among all the masses when 12 spies came back and said, yes, God has promised this land. It's everything that God said it would be. And yes, there are giants over there, but God. And only two said that. The but God. The majority said, we can't do this. It's dangerous. We might be persecuted. We might be killed. And such has been the story throughout life. Well, I don't know of any way to better prepare us for the Lord's table than to meditate upon glorying in the cross. And I don't know of any better way to do that than to, first of all, think about the words of Jesus on the cross. Our Lord remained occupied with his assignment, with what God had called him to do. He did not get sidetracked, no matter the circumstances. And so, in very difficult circumstances, to put it mildly, the first words out of his mouth were, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And oh, by the way, we're not just looking at history here. and We're not just rejoicing in what God has done on our behalf. But let's remember, Jesus says, I'm calling you to walk in my steps. We have a thousand things vying for our attention and our hearts to divert us from the call of God in our life. And there can be no greater model than our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You shall be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. In these words we see the mercy of Jesus for sinners, even for his enemies. And again, Romans 12 says, you have some enemies? Overcome them with good. Vengeance is needed. That's my business. We also see in these words of Jesus the power of Christ in saving one individual. We see him not focus on himself, but focus on caring for his family. Have you received these healing words? Have you come to a point in your life where you heard Jesus personally bring it to your heart father forgive him i paid the penalty for him at calvary he's one of mine you gave him to me i'm calling him to or her to myself jesus didn't just merely pray for sinners he went to the cross are you here as a sinner without christ there's no other Savior, there's no other hope, there's no other way. Flee to Christ. You've known about Christ, but you've never fled to him. You've never cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've never cried out, remember me. In Luke 23, 39 through 34, through 39 through 44, is that account of the thief. And we know from all of the passages in this incredible snapshot a snapshot of amazing grace that there were two thieves and that initially 
both of them were railing on Jesus. Scripture is very clear about this. But something amazing happened. One of them stopped. And he turned to this fellow thief and rebuked him. He suddenly owned his own sin. He said to his fellow thief, we deserve to be here. There was divine revelation upon his mind and heart, and he testified, this man, Jesus, does not deserve to be here. And then he cried out, remember me. And Jesus said, you'll be with me. How do you explain that? I mean, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. Here's a proper response. To cry out, I too am a sinner. Jesus, remember me. Or, Jesus, thank you for remembering me. We don't want to go to a passage like that and dive off into theories and questions that are beyond us. We just want to accept the plain truth of the scripture. This was a divine happening. One sinner repented, believed, his eyes were opened, he was saved. The other sinner remained in his rebellion. God is to be praised. Now, in John 19, Jesus saw his mother and a disciple, the disciple was standing there whom he loved, must have been John. And he says to Mary, Mother, behold thy son. Then he says to his disciple, Behold thy mother. So again, in the, in the incredible moments of intense agony and pain as persecution or, or the crucifixion is being t uh, placed upon Jesus, he, he's not thinking about himself. He takes time for a sinner, a thief. He takes care, compassionate care of his mother. Again, have, have you received these words of healing? Where you have heard in your heart the message of his mercy and kindness, his sacrificing pity, and have you, in your own walk with life, in life, you may have an incredible load upon your shoulders, but you're not stopped in your tracks by it. Your eyes are still open. There are people in my world who need to see Jesus. And like your master, you have eyes and hearts to live the gospel and to tell the gospel and to be sacrificial to others and to extend the love and the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness that your fellow believers need. Ephesians 4.32 is a powerful statement of what the Spirit of God empowers the Christian to do where we're exhorted to be rid of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and to put away from you malice and to be kind one to another 
tenderhearted, forgiving. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You see, when you have encountered Jesus, when you have been gripped by your sin and there's no way to be forgiven, there's no way to escape, and eternity in hell is before you, and you encounter Jesus and you're forgiven, you become a forgiving person. If you've not become a forgiving person, you need to go back and meet Jesus. I'm not saying that Christians never struggle, but Christians have an indwelling power to overcome because when we face life's problems, we run to our shepherd. Now your life begins. Others, Lord, yes, others. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Let this my motto be, help me to live for others that I may live like thee. As we look in these statements of Jesus from the cross, there is so much wonder, there is so much gospel, there is so much hope, even in the first words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's where every lost sinner is in the sense that they know not what they do. And what a prayer of Jesus for his enemies. While we were yet enemies, he died on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every person that has ever been or will ever be saved. All those who've been given to Jesus by the Father, John 17, were included in that prayer. And if you own the fact that you're a sinner, that's good news. Because we're living in a world where people, (laughs) I'm no sinner, I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I think I have a good chance to get to heaven. And they're going on chances and feeling and comparing themselves by themselves among themselves and no conviction of sin. But here is a man. We don't know what his life had been other than he'd been a confirmed thief and must have been a bad one. He's going to be crucified. And a revolution takes place all by grace. And God still does that. Have you experienced this? Are you experiencing this? Are you a channel for God's glorious gospel? Now, we come to the next word that came from the cross, and it is beyond our understanding. We, we sit, or we stand, and we have to back up and, and, and worship and wonder. And yet we can see enough. The most profound words, I think, spoken anywhere in the scripture. That's taking place at the most profound event in all of history. Yes, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is glorious. I'd never minimize it. But I can't find myself placing it in front of this moment. The Apostle Paul must have felt the same way, for he said, God forbid that I should glory, 
save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have to look at some other scriptures to start and set the stage here. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Jesus knew no sin, but he was made sin for us. He didn't deserve to be there. First Peter two twenty four. Jesus personally carried the burden of our sins in his own body when he was on the cross. The astounding wonder of Isaiah fifty three, verse three and six. God, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was no accident. Other verses tell us that Jesus was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And God the Father. Sometimes when we quote John 3.16, we forget what's behind it. God so loved the world that he gave. And God the Father laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Galatians 3.13, he was made a curse for us. All of these verses show us that what Jesus did on the cross was not for himself. It was not to be an example. He did it in behalf of others. I forget which verse. I think it's, I know it's there in Galatians. I think it's in chapter 3 where he uses that phrase of in behalf of. He did it in behalf of. Sinners. So, as a substitute, Jesus is laying down his life for his sheep. He died on the cross paying the sin debt. And so this becomes the answer for the greatest of all questions that can ever come across your mind. How can God be just and holy and not compromise his justice and holy, holiness and love me? Love a sinner. I was asked this week, How can God be merciful and just and loving if he does not save everyone? Many people think they have a claim on God's mercy. I have no claim on God's mercy. If I had a claim on God's mercy, it would not be mercy. It would be what I deserved. And so we twist things around and we think God owes us something. What we deserve is justice. How can God be just and holy and yet save a sinner like me? Only by this, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. 
He hung there. Jesus hung there as a sacrifice, and he satisfied the holy wrath of God against sin. And as we've seen from Scripture, he was cursed by God. Galatians 3.13. What does that mean? It's not meaning that God used bad language. Sometimes to understand what something means, it's good to look at the opposite. What is the opposite of being cursed by God? To be blessed by God. Wonderfully stated in, over in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give you peace. To be blessed by God. To be kept by God. To be able to enjoy his presence. To see him, to commune with him, to have fellowship with him, to know him. That's blessing. That's the only thing Jesus had ever known was the blessing of his father. What's the curse? The absence of God's gracious presence. The absence of God's favor. People have a lot of ideas about what hell is like. I don't know. Fully. I know what God's word says. I'm not going to try to explain it. But for example, in Luke chapter 6, there are flames. And there is torment. I am tormented in this flame. To me, stronger even than that is over in Revelation chapter 14, beginning with verse 9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And their smoke and their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and there shall be no rest. So what is hell's worst feature? Separation being cut off from the gracious presence of God. I don't know what all flames are going to do. I'm not going to try to figure out how it's all going to work out. But I am going to hang my hat on that which is foundational and secure God is not absent in hell. And oh, by the way, Satan is not in charge. But all of God's favor, all of God's goodness, all of God's grace is absent, cut off. And there is only the manifestation of his holy wrath. Cut off. 
from God's gracious presence. Well, I have my hell here on earth. I don't care how bad you've had it. You haven't had hell. Because no matter how bad you've had it here on earth, the whole human race is the beneficiary of the common grace of God that expands to all the earth. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. The horrors of this world are not to be compared to the horror of hell where there is no penetration, no penetration of the presence of God's favor and blessing. There is only the penetration of his curse, his wrath, cut off. And on the cross, when Jesus was made sin for us, he was in those dark hours cursed of God. No wonder he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Cut off from the presence and fellowship of his father. Forsaken. You say, wait a minute. This ain't right. Galatians 3.10 says that those who keep the commandments are going to be okay. Well, none of us did, but he did. And Jesus lived by faith. Yes, but you and I have it. And Jesus went there on our behalf. Chapter three, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 is, is what I was looking for a moment ago, where it says, on our behalf, for us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. Your whole eternity hangs on those two words, Jesus being on the cross for us. Our substitute, our sin bearer, our sin all laid on him. So what was the great horror, the greatest horror of Jesus at Calvary? Was it the physical suffering? No. Was it death by crucifixion? No. Thousands have died with pain. Thousands have died by crucifixion. Where do we turn to find an accurate understanding of Christ's death? Oh, I'll tell you. You need to find that film, The Passion of Christ. Oh, Miss Goy. Man, it shows you. You won't believe how bad it is. That is a godless, unbiblical film. The glories in gore and misses the main point. If you want a balanced, accurate account of the crucifixion of Christ, you go to the pens of the prophets and the apostles. They don't sugarcoat anything. Of his arrest, trial, beating, spittings, mocking, cruel crucifixion. But they don't add all that gore, trying to make some sort of impression upon the flesh. I had people came in here when that thing first, oh, it's, I saw it, it changed me, I'll never be the same. I know they were sincere, but it didn't happen. They continued the life of sin. 
The worst part about that film and about a lot of people's ideas about hell and about what Jesus suffered at Calvary is that they missed the most awesome part, the most significant part, that only one man, in the midst of his death and suffering, had the unspeakable horror of being made a curse for us, of the holy wrath of God being poured out upon him. It is, as we might say, God the Father turned his back on his beloved Son. The light of God's gracious presence was turned off. He was forsaken. He poured out his wrath for our sake, because of our sin, and the demands of God's justice were satisfied. How do you know? Because the lights came on. And Jesus said, It is finished. And then the Father would raise him from the dead and give him a name that is above every name. It's finished. Never to suffer again. Now, I, I have people that don't like me saying this, but I'm going to say it because it's true. Please don't ever go again. I don't care how dramatic it is. I don't how. I don't care how well they do uh, their acting. I don't care how what kind of emotional thrill it gives you. But passion plays are an abomination in the sight of God. There is no place to pretend to be Christ. There is no place to put Christ on a cross again. Well, I'm just looking. That's helping me. I'm visual. That's helping. You need to go to the Word of God and be satisfied with what God gives. No matter how well you try, you're going to diminish and you're going to miss the main reality. That enactment cannot show, cannot show you the reality of the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God. No one in the Bible ever did it. Go to the book of Acts, go to the epistles. They preached a crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, coming, victorious Christ. And when God wanted that incredible event remembered, he gave us scripture. And then he said, do this. Come to this table. Oh, I want you to remember. Christianity is not about play acting. It's not about having people on the stage acting and everybody else is an audience and then clap and clap and oh, wasn't that great? And then go out and continue to live like the devil. The Christian life is about going into God's word. Breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Being brought in absolute awe and wonder that God would love sinners like us. That Jesus would pay such a price. That God the Father would lay upon his son our guilt. That God would make his son a curse for us. 
and the glorious reality of Jesus paying the price in such a fashion that the Father is well pleased. He propitiated. He satisfied our wrath, God's wrath. No, we don't go back and try to reenact the shedding of the blood. We don't bring a lamb. We don't slay a lamb. There's a lot of things that the world loves and makes much to do about it. God says, here's something I want you to do. In remembrance of me, I want you to do this and I want you to do it often. I want you to come to the Lord's table in remembrance of me. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My own heart and yours, let's listen to this quote. Friends, all of our wickedness and waywardness and cold hearts and all of our proud and critical and unloving and unforgiving attitudes and all of our failures to hate sin and all of our murmuring and complaining and discontent and all of our idols of traditions of the way we want to worship instead of the way God has said, all of that can be directly traced to our failure to glory in the cross. Look at the scriptures and see how the Apostle Paul and all the saints gloried in the cross. There's no play acting. God has given us his word. He's given us the proper amount, account of all that happened. And God says, I want you to read it. I want you to meditate on it. I don't want you to add to it. I don't want you to take away from it. I want you to apply it. Those are things that are stated in the scripture. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Behold Christ in the word. And as the word of God is taught and preached, God will make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. As you read the word, as you study the word, God will make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. And as a believer, God will rebuke you and teach you and train you and equip you to be thoroughly equipped for all good works to the glory of God. This is God's way. So that you'll become more and more like him. Because you're focusing on the crucified, risen Christ. You're glorying in him. You're glorying in the cross. And so the more you glory in the cross, you know something's going to happen. The more you're not going to hate sin. When sin has a hold on me, let's get down to the root of it. I'm not meditating on the price that Jesus paid for me. I'm not glorying in the cross. Knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified gives us great deliverance from sin's power. Knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified also gives us great joy in the midst of trials and tribulations. You know why? Because meditation upon the cross and glory in the cross reminds us I'm loved. And I'm loved with a love that nothing can overcome. 
Romans 8. Nothing can separate from me from that love. So there's a lot of good reasons to glory in the cross. Transforms us from those whose hearts are filled with self-pity to instead crying out, I sure know what it is to hurt. Lord, who can I minister to? Who can I minister to? All these things have happened that we might be equipped and as we're ministered to by the Lord God, our healer, it is that we might be those who go forth to minister to others. How can I help others? Glory in Christ and his cross floods in my heart with love and gratitude for God. And as Paul said in Galatians 5, or in Galatians six fourteen, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me, and I to the world. Jesus' once and for all crucifixion is the foundation for the dual crucifixion in my own life. The Phillips paraphrase says, And God forbid that I should boast about anything or anybody except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that the world is a dead thing to me, and I'm a dead man to the world. I no longer find the world attractive. I'm not looking for life out there, and they don't like me. Oh, there'll be some who will be drawn to Christ because you're crucified. Just like people were drawn to Jesus. Repelled and drawn. Both. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's a call to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory about anything or anybody except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means... That the world is a dead thing to me. And you'll have to tell yourself this. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead to that. That's not in the life of Christ. Not to be in my life. We all have a little formula that we just inject a, a syringe and you're set for life. No, we're, having a, we're, we're given the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And as we apply it day by day, we're strengthened. And we're crucified to the world. The world's crucified to us. So what a privilege it is this morning to come to the Lord's table. If you're here again and you've never come to faith in Christ, flee. Flee from the wrath of God. Flee to Christ. Well, I don't know if I'm elect. Are you a sinner? Flee to Christ. God is not in the business of telling people who's elect and who's not. God's in the business of saving a numberless multitude, and he says he saves sinners. Are you a sinner? You're a good candidate. Flee to Christ. All who come to him, he says, I will in no wise cast out. Are you a sinner? A man sat in my office, I was telling the men this yesterday, sat in my office years ago. He described his life of sin. Every sexual thing you could imagine drugs, you name it. 
He even took the Love Life book that I was trying to go through to help and bring about the healing with he and his wife. He took it and started going over it with a harlot he was messing around with. He sat there in the office and said, Well, I'm just not predestined. I'm predestined to hell. You know what I told him? I said, you're lying through your teeth. You're a sinner and you know it and you don't want to repent. Repent or you're in trouble. Don't dare use some scripture to give you a cop out of what God is calling you to do. He now commands all men everywhere to repent. If you're outside of Christ, that's the word. If you're in Christ, glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which we are crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us. Our Father, we ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God to be upon us as we come to your table to glory in the cross and to be amazed at your love and to rejoice in the perfect sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is finished, complete. Help us to go forth as those who are rejoicing in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.